We're in Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 26 through 27. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Well, hey, let me um, just welcome you again. Like Emily said, my name is Nate, um, pastor here, and uh, I'll just join with the chorus and say happy Mother's Day. Um, just a side note, yesterday, my wife Amanda, the mother of our three children, she said, what are you preaching on tomorrow? And I was like, be angry and do not sin. And I promised her there was no direct correlation. Uh, this is simply part of this kind of five-week series we're doing, A New Way to Be Human. But that being said, before I get into the text, uh, let me say this about mothers. Um, you are worthy of honor today. Uh, the sacrifice, the sleepless nights, uh, the emotional exhaustion that you spend yourself for the good of your children. Um, it's wonderful. It's something to be celebrated. I hope if you're a mom this morning that you are duly honored. But secondly, let me say this to some of you this morning. This is a very hard day. Uh, this is a day in which you remember what you long for and has not arrived. Uh, this is a day in which maybe you look back and there's been a miscarriage. I was talking with uh, a friend this past week uh, who has walked this road over at least a couple years. And I asked her, I said, what, is, what has been helpful for you or what have been some truths? And she shared a lot of good things, but two things stuck out to me. She said this, God sees and hears your longing. Be honest before him. He can handle all the thoughts and feelings. It was very wise. And then secondly, she brought up just the, the character of God. And she, she, she mentioned this. She said, God is in fact a good father, and he's not punishing or withholding from you. And what was really remarkable about that is she rooted it in, we've said it all morning, but in, in the gospel, this dynamic that God has not actually withheld his son for you. Therefore, you can know, even though your circumstances might suggest that he has forgotten you, in the gospel, there is a greater truth, that he is with you and that he is for you. So I hope you know that this morning. Um, that being said, let me, let me pray, and then we'll get into uh, be angry and do not sin, all right? So let's pray. Father, this morning, um, just, just pray that as we continue this series, that your spirit would direct our hearts to see more and more of who you are, Jesus, and that we'd be transformed more and more into that likeness. And we just pray now that you would take the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts to be pleasing in your sight. O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, in the summer of 2018, uh, my family and I came back from a summer vacation, and we found out that the water line to our refrigerator had completely busted open. And it had been going for approximately two to three days. And so... You know, as we think about a house, maintaining a house, you have certain, you know, like, hey, I gotta, I gotta fix this, I gotta do that, small things. But that led into six months of renovation. Gutting our basement, redoing our kitchen. It was 
very challenging. And this experience of a complete renovation is a bit like what this series is unpacking. C.S. Lewis, he mentioned this. He says, when you enter into a relationship with Jesus, you know, you know there are things he's going to work on in your life. You know, you think it's like a leaky faucet. It's a door that won't shut. But then he begins to knock down walls. And it's really painful. And you realize he's about a complete renovation. And yet Lewis makes this stunning conclusion. He, he, he says this, he says, God is not making a decent little cottage. He is building a different house, a new wing here, an extra floor there. He is building a palace. And if we could back up to verse 24, Paul says this about what he's at work doing. He's, he's creating us after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. That's what he's about in your life. And this morning, to be honest, uh, as we started this series, some of you are eager for this renovation. You're like, let's, let's go for it. Like, I, I know I want this. Uh, others of you, if you're honest, you feel a little bit guilty. Uh, as one author would put it, there's, you're, you've been paralyzed by a, a spiritual stagnation. You know, you, you maybe, you show up here and you're like, I feel like I should have like a second story on my house now, and I'm still trying to figure out this creaky door. You know, others of us, there's just a low-grade cynicism. We've tried. We've really tried. We've attempted to change, and we're just pretty sure this house is always going to look this way. Others of us, if we're honest, um, we're fine with our decent little cottage, right? We actually feel pretty good about our house. We look around and we actually feel a little bit better about our house than other people's houses, right? And here's my hope and prayer in this series. It, it is, as we consider to explore what it means that this new way to be human, to put on this new self, that no matter where you're coming from in that spectrum, that we might grow together. Um, Listen, for those of you who are spiritually stagnant, that this series, that you might actually, that the gracious intervention of Jesus might renew you, might move you forward. To those who have a low-grade cynicism, that, that you might be quenched with a realistic hope. Not a false hope, but a realistic hope. That, that some of us who feel good about our house, that this series would graciously, subversively disrupt you so that you might know how deep this work actually has to go. And today, Paul continues this work, this, this call to put on the new self, and he calls us to a new way to be angry. A new way to be angry. So three things this morning. The complexity of anger, a new syllabus for anger, and lastly, a new wardrobe of anger. So let's look at the first one, complexity. Uh, you know, Paul begins in this particular passage with a command, be angry. It's really interesting. And that literally means to be full of anger. 
And yet, you know, if you were here last week, or even if you weren't, you might be familiar with this passage. Later on in verse 31, Paul will say, take off or put away anger. And it's the same root word. So the question is, Paul, are we supposed to be angry? Or are we to put away anger? Can you make up your mind? You've just confused us in like a few verses. Now, of course, Paul clarifies. Verse 26, Paul says, be angry and do not sin. And what Paul is saying is that the emotion of anger, when you say, I mean, anger is basically this. It's saying, that's not right. That's what anger is. And Paul is saying, when you feel that, there are ways to do so in, in ways that are good and they're bad. There are ways to do it that are righteous and there are ways that are unrighteous. And that is why anger is so complex. I mean, think for a moment, all the situations. What do you do when you're backed up on the belt line and you're already late to an appointment and you can already feel it brewing? Or what about this? Moms, when you're in the middle of a target aisle and your kid begins to melt down and your cart is full, what are you going to do? Or how about this one? How about this? How about when our friends get together and they don't invite us? Or how about just marriage? and the normal rhythms of just conflict. And maybe it's the same issues every week. What does it mean to be angry, but then not to sin? What's the good anger and what's the bad anger? Well, and, and this is the beautiful part, is Paul does not leave us without help. We just need a new syllabus. You know, um, a, a couple weeks ago when we opened this series, um, Paul, in verses 17 to 24, he's, he's unpacking this principle, this new self. And he, gets, he boils down, he says, here's the new syllabus. And you know what a syllabus is. It's what you need to study. It's what you're going to go through for the whole semester. And Paul says, you need to learn Christ. That is significant. Paul does not say, here's some information. He's talking about a person. You are called to learn Christ. That is the new syllabus. The entire course is summed up in him. So here's what this means. If you want to see what good anger is like, you've got to look to Jesus. He's the one who we are following. So for a moment, let's pull up a chair, let's get out a number two pencil, and let's look at two passages and consider, what does Christ show us about anger? So passage one, we're going to look at is Mark 3. I'll read it here. It'll be up on the screen. Again, he, Jesus, entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that he might accuse him. And he said to the man with a withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, 
and his hand was restored. Jesus gets angry here, doesn't he? And what is it that gets him angry? The religious leaders of the day, they had added to God's law. They had made rules outside of God's law so they wouldn't break God's law. And Jesus is breaking one of their rules, not his rules. In other words, they don't want him to heal on the Sabbath because that would be work according to their rules. And Jesus is like, hold on, is it lawful to do good or do evil, to heal or whatever on the Sabbath, to do good? And notice this, Jesus gets angry. He is grieved at the hardness of their hearts. And here's what we learn. Jesus shows us that good anger is directed when other people's welfare is at stake. There's, a, there's another passage, we, we're not going to go to today, but John 2, you might be familiar with it. Jesus like flips over tables in John 2. He, um, he's so upset, and here's the reason why he's upset, because they have made the temple, the place where you're to meet God, they've turned it into a Costco. They've turned it into a market, and now God's people, other people cannot come in and encounter this God, and he's upset. And so, Jesus, all the time, gets angry. He shows his anger when other people's welfare is at stake. And here's what this means. Sometimes, and let's be honest, our lack of anger is sinful. Sometimes, we are apathetic to other people's welfare. And point blank, this is simply a lack of love. Jesus shows us that there are times where good anger should be present in light of what other people are going through. We ought to be angry. Let's go to one other passage here. Mark 6. It'll be up on the screen. And on the Sabbath, Jesus began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, and among his relatives, and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. It's interesting, this happens in Jesus' hometown, and he shows up to teach. He's done some amazing things, and they're amazed, but then they begin to go, we know him, we know his family. And it says that they took offense at him. Just for a moment here, pause. Jesus, who as Mark, God, who as Mark begins his gospel, calls him the Christ, the Son of God, shows up and teaches and does some mighty works, and they are offended. Can we just be frank here? Jesus is being treated unfairly. Jesus is not being shown due respect and due honor. In fact, he is rejected. He's rejected by the very people he grew up around. They're not strangers. And notice what Jesus does. Or maybe I should say it this way. Notice what he doesn't do. 
does he look at them with anger? Does he overturn anger? Oh, excuse me, overturn tables? No, he heals a few more people and then leaves. And listen, this is why this is so stunning. Have you ever been disrespected? Think for a moment. Have you ever had one of your classmates go behind your back and say something that was untrue? Or think about the time when someone yelled at you a racial slur. Or think about the time when you were passed over for a promotion, not because of your performance, but because of politics. How do you and I respond when that happens? Oh, we're so quick, aren't we? Friends, this happens repeatedly to Jesus. In fact, this incident right here is actually on the low end. Later on, Jesus is called Beelzebub, which was another term for Satan. Obviously, later on, he's beaten, he's mocked, he's crucified. And in each of these situations, he is innocent. And Jesus, time and time again, does not respond back in kind. Do you notice how different this syllabus is than ours? You know, if we're honest, this is a little bit troubling. Let me tell you two ways this is troubling. The first is this. Is Jesus okay with being treated unfairly? You know, maybe he's just telling us to look the other way when we're treated unfairly. The Apostle Peter, later on, was reflecting on the way of Jesus. He walked with Jesus for years, for years, and he wrote this in his epistle. He said this, when he, Jesus, was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And notice this, Jesus is not okay with being treated unfairly because at the end, what does it say? He entrusted himself to him who judges justly. In other words, here's what he's doing. He is saying this, my father will take care of it. It's not okay, but my father will take care of it. One author put it this way, Jesus' non-reaction was not his approval. It's very important. His non-reaction was not his approval. But also, take note of this, Another author put it this way, Jesus will not be mastered by the injustices of others. He won't be controlled by them. He won't be ruled by them. The second thing that you might be asking is this. If Jesus answers in the midst of situations we'd be angry with, with, with a non-reaction, we know it's not approval, but then maybe he's just weak. Maybe Jesus is just kind of letting evil kind of just have its way. We have to go to another passage in Romans 12 where Paul's writing the church at Rome. And look at what Paul writes to the church. And he's just applying what Jesus did to the church. He says this, Repay no one evil for evil. 
but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, there's a lot there, but I want you to key in on that last part. Notice what Paul says. Overcome evil with good. In other words, Jesus, in his non-reaction, is not approving. In fact, he is actually going after evil in a different way. A way that overcomes evil with good. I mean, think about this for a moment. What happens when someone insults you and you talk behind their back after they talked behind your back? Or how about this? What happens when someone attacks you and then you withdraw? You withdraw. And there's this quiet brooding and resentment that begins to sit in. All of a sudden, that evil begins to be at work in you. And here's the part. That means evil wins. You know, the reason why in Ephesians 4.26, where it talks about don't let Satan get a foothold, is because Satan's desire is to divide. And this is the beautiful part. In other words, Jesus' way is this. When he is treated unfairly, he treats them unfairly back with mercy. And that doesn't mean that he doesn't speak truth. It doesn't mean he doesn't speak up. Jesus does. But listen, his non-reactive, merciful response has a bigger picture in mind. Brothers and sisters, do you, do you see this new syllabus, this new way of being angry, a, a way that is aroused when other people's welfare is at stake, and yet at the same point is not passive or apathetic, and yet it's, when it's personal against you, there's a self-control that is non-reactive, merciful, yet truthful, whose goal is much bigger than we ever thought. So that's the new way to be angry. Well, how do we do it? You know, um, this last point, the new wardrobe of anger. In verses 17 to 24, earlier on, Paul has used this imagery of put off and put on. It's this language of clothing. Uh, Think with me for a moment. Uh, When you got up this morning, you got out of bed, you took off your pajamas, you put on new clothes, right? I'm assuming all of you are not wearing your pajamas today. That's what I'm assuming, right? That's what you did. And mind you, you did that without even thinking. But there are some here, right? Moms who had to dress their kids this morning. It took time. You know, the goal is that they'll be able to dress themselves, right? But, you know, sometimes that happens. They come out with, you know underwear on their head, the shirt's on backwards, they don't know it. And friends, 
This whole conversation, when Paul is saying put off, put on, Paul is saying this new way of living, it's a little bit like that. It's very clumsy. There are, new, there are things to put off, and there are things to put on, and it takes time, and it takes practice. It takes a community, actually, that's orbiting around this news. Let me, let me offer you three things this morning to think about putting off and putting on, and then we'll be done. Firstly, put off quick anger and put on slow anger. Ephesians 4, verse 26, Paul is actually quoting Psalm 4, 4. This isn't new. Paul says this, or excuse me, the psalmist says this, be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. And what the psalmist is suggesting, right, is that oftentimes we are reactive and not reflective in our anger. So put yourself in the situation. You get the email in the inbox from someone who's critical of the work you've been working on the last couple years. And what do you want to do? Oh man, you're ready to fly it back right in their face, right? You want to defend. But this new way to be angry calls you to slow down. To slow down. You know, it might mean in an argument with your spouse, you say, I just... I need to step away. You know, when it says in Ephesians 4.26 that do not let the sun go down, uh, just a quick note there, it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to solve everything that night. There are moments between Amanda and I where there'll be a, a moment we'll say, hey, we're, we're not together right now. We're going to like, leave it for the night, but we're committed to coming back tomorrow and work through this. That's Okay. Sometimes we need that. We need space. Otherwise, we'll say things we shouldn't say. Exodus 35.4 reveals that God is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. So that's the first thing. Put off, put off quick anger, put on slow anger. Secondly, put off self-centered anger and put on narrow-centered anger. Let's just imagine for a moment you get home and the kids are chaotic and all you want to do is sit in your chair and relax, right? You just want to turn on the game and, and your kids are fighting and they're angry and then you start to get angry. Put it this way, self-centered anger in those moments is demanding. It says, I want what I want right now. Other-centered, excuse me, narrow-centered anger understands there's actually something deeper going on. There's something underneath the surface that's happening. Uh, earlier on, again, in Ephesians 4, right before here, one of the things when it talks about the old self, it says that the old self is ruled by deceitful desires. There's things we want underneath, and they're over-desires. So let's just go back to that moment. Think for a moment. You're, you're frustrated that your kids are angry, and they're coming at you you need to ask the question, what do you want in that moment? And most of us, to be honest, we just want comfort. And comfort isn't a bad thing, but when that's the God you're serving, when that rules the day, it ruins relationships. Or think for a moment, when you get the email about your vocation, about the project you've been working on, it's very critical. 
Think for a moment. You're so frustrated, so angry. Why is that? For many of us, here's what it is. Your identity is wrapped up in that project. Where you're getting your meaning and your value and your significance in life is right there. And that's an attack actually on you. Do you understand this? There's a deeper thing going on here. Each of these is simply self-centered and ego-driven. To put on narrow-centered anger begins by looking within and seeing what thing other than Jesus are you serving? Because here's the greater truth. When you want comfort, Jesus is actually the only source of true comfort. Uh, Let's go to identity. Do you understand the ever-shifting dynamic of your performance and how upsetting that is based on how you're doing in other people's eyes? Do you understand when your identity is in Christ, you are known all the way down to who you are, and yet you are loved, you are accepted, your identity is secure. And when you're walking in that, this is what changes in the moment of anger, because when you're walking in that, then you can actually deal with your kids and you can deal with that email, which are important. You do need to address your kids' hearts and you do probably need to move forward your team to address the needs of the company. But you do so not reacting, not with a self-centered response, but with a response that's actually stabilized in the gospel itself. Thirdly, lastly, put off passive anger and put on truthful anger. Passive anger, it doesn't engage but it withdraws. It is, it is self-serving because it seeks to protect oneself. And Jesus, he is patient, but he is also truthful. I mean, think back to Mark 3. At one point, when he's looking at angry at those, at those religious leaders, he says, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or do harm? That is truth. He is speaking truth in love there. He is grieved about the state of their heart. There are moments, and this takes wisdom, much wisdom. There are moments where we need to say things that are true. Uh, Winston Churchill, in his memoirs in World War II, uh, he had to work closely with Joseph Stalin against Hitler. But what was interesting is from 1939 to 41, Stalin was partnered up with Hitler and was actually helping Nazi Germany go after England with resources, assisting in their war effort against England. And then, of course, Hitler betrays him, and now they're allies. And England uh, was pouring in relief and war materials, and yet Stalin was demanding, he was very suspicious, rarely grateful, and never trusting. And he frequently blamed England for all of Russia's troubles, And Churchill was patient, he was forgiving, he was generous, and yet on one occasion, he looks at the ambassador after they were coming after him, and he said, I am angry. Remember that only four months ago, we in this island did not know whether you were coming in against us on the German side. Whatever happens and whatever you do, you of all people have no right to make reproaches against us. And friends, the relationship was fine after that. 
Not perfect, but there are moments, right? Constructive conflict is a part of good anger. It's firm. Jesus is firm, but he is not harsh. This new wardrobe, I don't know how you feel, but think about it. Think about how challenging this is. How do you, where do you get the resources to do this? And I've already, I've already hinted at this along the way, but let me put it this way and we'll close. You've got to put on the gospel. Don't you see in each of these things, this is exactly what God has done for you in Christ. Or let me summarize it this way. Do you not know that your sin and my sin evokes God's wrath and his anger? And yet, what has he done? What has he done? He has patiently, truthfully, humbly worked in such a way to overcome your evil and my evil with his goodness. And he has demonstrated that through his work on the cross and the empty tomb. So friends, be angry and do not sin. Let's pray. Father, we uh, thank you this morning for the wisdom of your word. And we pray now that as we walk this out, that you would meet us where we are, in the workplace, in our relationships, with our kids. Would you help us to put on this new self? Would you help us to be made new? And we ask this all in the person and work of your son, Jesus. Amen. Well, as we continue this morning, we're going to respond with communion, which is, again, we're putting on the gospel, we're remembering. So, um, as a band begins to play, you can go around the side aisles, grab the communion cups and the bread as well. Like I said, they're all combined, I guess. That's right. And then come back to your seat, take them as you're ready in your own time. But let me just remind us, on the night on Jesus was, was betrayed, he gathered his core and he took the bread. He said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And afterwards, he took the cup and he passed it around. He said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. So come and feast at the grace and mercy of this king. All right, you can come.